everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 441, Making the Most with Robbie Simpson. Big Chillians, and welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Eddie. Eddie, how are we? Everything's going well over here. Nice to hear. And yeah, we're coming right off the back of a you know really interesting interview with with Robbie Simpson. So for listeners tuning in for that interview, that should usually the interview pops up around 25, 30 minutes into the podcast. We obviously encourage you to listen to the the start as well, but. Yeah, great conversation about his career as a professional football. Didn't really go into too much about his now current position as a man, as, as a manager, but also pretty extensively about his work that he does with professional athletes in terms of their life after their sporting careers, which I thought was really, really fascinating. Yeah, and I guess, you know, since we were talking about uh, English football, I think I want to start, Eddie. Is Halon going to break the Premier League scoring record before – Christmas break. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's obviously back-to-back hat tricks, including a first-half hat trick last night. He's um, so so. He's currently on pace for sixty-eight point four goals this season. Yeah, that's not happening. That's <laughs> the, I love the currently on pace. You, the when I love when you hear it is like with a player hitting home runs, and you know they'll get off to a hot start in the first like twenty games of the NF, uh, the M- MLB season. They'll be like currently on pace to hit 98 home runs. It's like, well, it's obviously not going to happen, is it? But I, I mean, yes, the home run one, but well, is he going to score 68? No. But can you continue to see him get this many opportunities every match? Yeah, I think you can, right? I think that's the difference is in baseball, you're just in the zone, you're in the groove. But here, he's going to get eight, 10 opportunities a match in most matches. I mean, when, once you start playing, you know, a team like maybe like Liverpool or Arsenal, you're, you're going to get less and you're going to have to take advantage of them. But when you're playing some of these lower teams in the table, he's going to get a ton of opportunities. I mean, he, how many could he have scored if they didn't sub him? <laughs> no, definitely. And, and look, that's going to be one of the issues. If they are winning, you know, by three, four five goals, he's not going to finish the match. And, and also, the other thing that's going to slow him down is the squad rotation, which for him, we probably won't see quite as much just because of the they don't have a like-for-like replacement, so it is a style change. And he's young. And he should be able to handle it. <laughs> I mean, you say that, but he's missed considerable time every yeah, season throughout his career so far. So they're, they're going to be careful with him. You know, I mean, at Dortmund, he picked up sort of muscle injuries every season. So I cannot foresee him playing... I mean, I'm sure if you're Guardiola, you're hoping he plays maybe 30 Premier League matches at most. You know, so once the Champions League gets going, and this is such a compressed season with the with the World Cup coming in in November, I mean, it, the Premier League season resembles a championship season. By that, I mean you are playing, you know, three matches every week. So. He will suffer a little bit from squad rotation, probably encouraged a little bit by Alvarez getting his first couple of goals for City last night as well. So that's an encouraging sign for him. But I, I, could, could he break the record? Yes. 
I think he probably will eventually. I just don't think it will be this season. Really? With that, with the start already, you don't think so? I mean, so he needs to get, what, the record's 32, I think. So, you know, it's a lot of goals. You know, it's if he's trying to break it, it's then trying to get to 33. So again, if I think he's maybe only going to play in 30, then you're saying he needs to average over a goal a game. And well, he's on that pace just now. Just over the course. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I got you. I got you. <laughs> you were ready to get no, busy. I mean, <laughs> I, again, I think eventually he probably will. Um, but I, I would be surprised if it's this season. But I guess the big sporting news of last night is that Serena Williams' career lives on for at least one more match. Yeah. Yeah, so actually uh, my cousin was at the match and was in the family group chat text saying that, uh, you know, oh, he might be watching Serena's last match ever. Um, and afterwards I had a text him and say, well, you might have seen her last win ever, but you didn't see her last match. I, I have to say I watched from – I got home and watched from the second set onward. And it, it was fun to watch. I, I mean, we – Sometimes we are critical, I think, of Serena Williams, but when you see someone who is the greatest of all time in their sport and winding down and not wanting to kind of give in at that final wind down and, and clearly playing above her current level of how she should be playing. She's played, I think she had said, three or four matches leading up to this you know, tournament, so not... I guess you could say she's fresh, but not, you know, not in any great shape or form. And she, she just competed the hell out of her. And it, it was, it was fun to watch. It was pretty, it was, I was, I was caught into it, you know, and I was rooting for her at, at in that third set because she just refused to back down. And even when she, she went up a break and then gave it back and then it didn't seem to phase her. And that was really impressive. Yeah, no, I mean, She's obviously fighting hard and wants to have this, you know, you, I'm sure she's dreaming of the storybook ending to her career, winning an unexpected U.S. Open. She benefits slightly, I would say, from the fact that there's not a huge strength and depth on the women's side of the game at the moment. So, yes, she beat the world number two uh, yesterday, but I wouldn't necessarily say. I knew you were going to say this. Oh, if she's a number two, number but she's two. not really a number two. <laughs> no, I'm not saying she's not really the. I'm not in the way tennis rankings work. You can't dispute your ranking because you know it's a rolling 365 day rankings point ranking system. So you are where you deserve to be when it comes to your rankings. That being but. said, <laughs> I don't think there's going to be a lot of people talking about you know the a lot of the careers of some of the players on the women's side. At the moment, it's just not the strongest period ever. In the same way that the men's game is suffering a little bit from not having people step up in the, you know, in the shadow of one of the greatest eras of tennis ever, and you're not having, you know, you're not, you've not had a Serena Williams replacement yet, and you're not getting the Federer and Nadal Djokovic replacements yet. Um, so it's an issue for on both sides of the game. But my issue with Serena Williams is obviously absolutely fantastic player and enjoyable to watch. And yes, you know, at a U.S. Open where the crowd is going to get really worked up, it adds to the atmosphere and the experience. The 
the the big doubt is always how will she handle it when it becomes clear she's going to lose you know she has the ability to sulk and kind of throw a fit and maybe be a little bit unpleasant and particularly at the US Open where she's had a couple of very notable moments in her career of maybe not behaving as well as you would want that's going to be the issue will she be able to handle her final ever defeat bowing out with grace i think she will because of the appreciation of the moment and the response that she'll probably get from the fans there but there is always a risk with her that you know the the kind of nastier side of serena williams comes out when she realizes that her race is run. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just also the competitive side, right? I mean, I, it, it's your last ever match. You don't, you know, your last ever match, you don't want to lose it and you don't want to probably lose it, it poorly, you know? So if things start falling apart, that must be a really frustrating feeling to know this is the last time I'm ever going to play. And I'm kind of playing like shit, you, you know, that's got to be sure, even worse. <laughs> sure. But we're not, you know, Serena Williams, bad moments. Have, cannot be just described as over competitive. You know, you're talking about someone who has twice defaulted at the US Open, once for supposedly and seemingly threatening to potentially kill a line, a line judge, and once for clearly receiving coaching and then just being unwilling to accept the fact that she was getting told off. And, you know, those, those are the two big negative moments within her career, probably. And Look on the, in comparison to all of the incredible moments and the great achievements, they it's nothing. You know, they, these will not even be mentioned in her biography. You know, but you know, you you know, she has it in you. She's a volatile character. It's it's sort of like Kyrgios, or I mean, not to that's a little bit of an unfair comparison. She's not that's quite a that terribly unfair comparison. That just shows but you know that what you're I mean. A hater. <laughs> I'm not a hater, but you you just have to know when someone has it in them to. And and I guess the difference is too, you see it a lot with tennis players because I think there's like a tennis brat culture in young tennis players. And, you know, Federer had it in him when he was young. Djokovic had it in him when he was young. Both of them kind of grew out of it. I think Serena Williams never really did. But so I'll be, will she bow out in the way? I, I think she will. I think in her mind, she will have planned, you know, exactly how... She'll know I'm probably not winning the U.S. Open, and this is exactly what I want to happen when I lose. I'm going to guess she has some kind of plan in mind, but part of me also wants her to explode. I mean, you say when she doesn't win the U.S. Open, but she looked decent yesterday. So, I mean, the question for me is, does she have the conditioning to play that match, what, three more times? And she's also playing doubles as well. So I understand you play doubles to kind of, you know, she said she's playing doubles to get more practice for her singles matches. But at a time when you're at her age and not in the best shape you've been in your life, it's got to be, a. I think it's going to be to her detriment, not to her help. I don't think it matters. And I think if she were somehow to find herself in the latter stages of the singles tournament and was still in the doubles, then she could always just drop out. I think she's playing the doubles because that's her much better chance of winning something. So I think it's that. Yes, she'll be saying it because it's she needs the match practice and stuff. And I'm sure that helps. 
because the only way you can get that sort of match fitness right is on the court itself. You know, as much training as you do, it's just not the same experience. But I'm, I'm sure the other element, she is a very, very good doubles player. I mean, she's a very, very good tennis player overall, but she is an extremely good doubles player as well. Not every singles player, great singles player, translate is able to translate their game to being a very good doubles player. She certainly can. And she probably has a better chance of winning on the double side than she does on the single side. I mean, you have to look, not the bookmaker's odds are in any way an indication of what your realistic possibilities are of winning. She's 14 to one right now to win. I think those are too short. I would say she's 50 to one to win, Wow! but who knows? Stranger things have happened. Last year, the U S open was won by you know, a complete unknown coming through qualifiers. So was Emma Raducanu a less surprising victory than Serena Williams potentially winning it in her final tournament? No. So, you know, who knows? Hey, Tiger Woods winning the Masters at what, age 44, 45? <laughs> yeah. And, and golf is different though, right? <laughs> because I think, I think where Serena Williams will have the real issue what Serena Williams will benefit from is what a lot of tennis, a lot of tennis players or athletes in general can benefit from when you have that aura surrounding you. She will be able to mentally win some of these matches because for some of the people she comes up against, playing Serena Williams in the U.S. Open is almost as big as it's going to get. You know, like you are yeah. stepping in. That was the first matchup for uh, Annette. What I forget where Contevet. Yeah. yeah, however you're supposed to correctly yeah, say I, I didn't want to say it because I knew I was going to butcher it. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And, and you know, even if you've been successful, even if you've won tournaments, you know, even if you took someone like Sviatek, for example, who is the favorite and deservedly so, even her, the, the stepping into play on center court against Serena Williams in that kind of atmosphere in a loud, you know, the US Open is unique in terms of how involved the spectators are in the experience. It might, it, it could get too big for a lot of people and she might benefit from that for a little bit, but I do think eventually she will come up against someone where the, they aren't distracted by everything else. And they realize I've got a fairly immobile opponent on the other side of the court. And if I can just concentrate on moving her around, I will win this match. I mean, the other thing she has going for her, obviously, is the crowd. I mean, at, at a point, I felt bad for who she was playing against because every time she won a point, it was as if, like, there was complete silence. There wasn't a fan even cheering. And then when Serena yeah. scored a point, it was like an earthquake registering in New York City. It was insane. Uh, and yeah. that, that's got no, that's got to be tough. To know that you're, it, like, not the not the disliked person, but that you're just not the one they want to see win. You know, it's not like they don't hate yeah, you, but they clearly don't want you to win. No, you're, you're playing spoiler. You are the, the bad guy in, in that, in this, you know, play, but yes, that again, that could get to some people. There will be other people who are motivated by that. There will be people who thrive in that environment and think this is great. I, I love this. But again, that's has to be the right player. But there will definitely, she will come up against someone who will get themselves worked up about the idea of, oh, you all want to see me lose? No, I'm going to be the last. I'm going to be the last person to ever play Serena Williams. Unfortunately, she's that's not my... playing Nick Curios. <laughs> <laughs> 
Speaking of curious, though, did you see he uh, made some headlines already in his in his match? I didn't see any of the headlines oh. to, to his play now. So he won his match uh, in what four sets? I think um, four sets. Yeah, against yeah, uh, yeah. who he said was Bonzi. Yeah. yeah, who he said was at the top level he's ever played him, and he was really impressed. But nonetheless, he complained at one point that he could smell marijuana and that for people running back and forth on the courts with asthma, you don't want to be breathing in marijuana smoke. So that was one of his complaints. And he said, I get, I get that you can smell food and that's okay, even though it's disgusting, but marijuana smell is unacceptable. So he didn't like that. And then at another point, he told his box to get the F up and leave. Like literally, don't to leave the stadium. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, look, he has to be careful, right? As we discussed in the last episode, he's already facing legal action for accusing someone of drinking seven hundred drinks. He doesn't want to have kind of be racking up lawsuits in every tournament he goes to because he's accusing people of, you know, being under the influence of different substances. So, look, he loves the attention, and again, he's a great example. Kyrgios would love, you know, if, as you said, if you put him in that environment where the crowd, you, he knows the crowd does not want him to win, he would be thriving. Like that would be such a huge motivator for him. And he does just come across as an athlete who needs to be complaining about something, needs to feel like the world is against him. And I think the problem he has is early in his career, he was quite disliked. So he was genuinely playing in environments where people didn't like him very much. But now he's had this sort of cult of personality and people start to have soft spots for him. And he's probably one of the most popular player on the men's tour at the moment. So maybe he's having to kind of invent these issues because he knows in a match, I have to be worked up. I need to have that feeling. And so before it would be genuinely these people are insulting me in the stadium. Now it has to be, I can smell marijuana. <laughs> well, I mean, he said most people don't know he's asthmatic. So it really bothers him when he's trying to, I didn't to know run that. back and forth so, on the court. Well, now, you know, now, now, don't, also, now don't smoke weed around him when he's trying to win the U S open. Eddie. <laughs> I mean, you can, I know it's legal in New York, right? But you can't be sitting in a stadium smoking, weed right who knows what the like, there's no way do. that's happening <laughs> no <laughs> but i mean there's just no way that's happening uh, yeah like, i don't it's... know but he also did comment in his, in his post-match interview that at this point in his career he feels like he's become a really uh professional player and that you know he's put a lot of the antics behind and he's become pretty professional that's what he said <laughs> it's good to get that yeah only sort of 10 years into two his hours before he was berating his box to leave the stadium <laughs> Well, I mean, his level of professionalism at one point, right, in terms of going to bars the night before matches and staying up late. I mean, he has a famous rant where he told himself he shouldn't have been up playing FIFA until 4 a.m. Like, And he was screaming at himself on a court, insulting himself for having done that. What do you expect yeah. to happen? I mean, I'm sure he's cut some of those elements. And, and I think that's exactly what he's talking. I, I, In his mind, I think that's what he thinks it means to be a professional that the antics don't count, but it's that, you know, he made that point that he's training harder than he ever was. He's more focused than he ever was, which is true. And you can tell, I mean, he's, he, he's 
making it further in these tournaments, right? He's getting better. So obviously that's it's helping if he could just eliminate the other stuff. But at the same time, I hope yeah, he he's, I hope he doesn't eliminate the other stuff because I enjoy watching it. <laughs> well he's never going to eliminate all of it. But yeah, he's the most informed player in men's tennis. So you know he, he definitely has that going for him. But you know if if the smell of food is one thing that could get him worked up, he he might not want to look at the new Heinz clothing collection that's come out. I don't know if you've seen this, but Heinz are partnering with um, ThreadUp to sell pre-stained clothes so that you will buy clothes that have a ketchup stain feature on them as a fashion item. This is not a joke. This is legitimate. You're buying a t-shirt that they have spilt some Heinz ketchup on and you're paying for the lovely addition to your shirt. Wow, that must be the, wor- the world's a mess. Wow, the world is an See, absolute mess. Now, Eddie, funny that you started the story where you did because I thought you were going to say he should stay away from Memphis because <laughs> talking about food spills, a tractor trailer containing Alfredo sauce jars tipped over. And there was about a quarter of a mile of road just covered in Alfredo sauce on the highway. And they had to stop all traffic and they had to come up and clean just like thousands of gallons of Alfredo sauce all over the highway. So people were commenting that for miles you could smell Alfredo sauce, which is kind of interesting. And it mirrors, there was like a big joke going around about, uh, is pesto going to be next? Because the week before in California, a tomato truck had tipped over and spilled. I think it was, it was a crazy amount of tomatoes. 15, oh, 150,000 tomatoes were spilled over the highway. So close to a quarter of a million. <laughs> I have to admit, I didn't think this was the update that you were going to provide. I didn't know you were t- closely tracking spilled goods in the food trucking industry. But Well, I don't think it's very often that a almost a quarter million tomatoes just end up on a highway. Wouldn't know. But look, it's, it's some people think sometimes you go to those cities, right? Where they have a big, like a certain type of factory in them. And then they have that distinct Hershey smell. The yeah. city of and Hershey reeks like chocolate. And then people have that. Some people love it for a lot of people. It will be like the selling point as to part of the reason why they love being yeah. there or living there. Yeah. When, so when my, my father was a cop, he used to, he worked on the turnpike, which is like one of the major roads in New Jersey. And when trucks spilled over back in the day, when the cops came to clean it up, if it was something, you know, that they couldn't, you can't put it back in the truck once the truck spills. So you could kind of just like take some <laughs> and uh, don't, don't get your dad. Don't get your dad in trouble. here. I don't think it's going to be in trouble. The, it wasn't. What's the statute? So, what's the statute of limitations from taking spilled goods? So, yeah. <laughs> so we had two uh, notable uh, times where our entire second refrigerator and freezer was filled to capacity. One was one carrying frozen chicken tenders. That happened to be very good chicken tenders that we ate for years. These things, like we had so many. The other one that you might like more, Eddie, was a haagen truck flipped over once. And he came home oh. with just tons of pints of haagen and the haagen bars of ice cream. 
and we were we would give it away at parties and we still had it for over a year out of those two i'd much prefer the chicken tenders yeah you say that but i don't believe you eddie you can you, <laughs> you just... can paint this persona that you're a man who doesn't love ice cream and donuts. I don't. But it's such a no. I, I mean, lie. I much prefer I much I much prefer donuts to ice cream. But I'm not eating like I, mean, I don't eat either on a regular basis. But I so I mean, I would choose a donut. I choose a good donut over a good ice cream anytime. You say this, but the last time I spent any time with you, I spent a week and a half with you, and I saw you eat ice cream six times in those ten days. <laughs> What are you talking about? Six, you saw me eat ice cream once. On you ate it two days at Ascot. Twice. twice. <laughs> no, I only had it once at Ascot. You're a liar. <laughs> no, 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 no. You, from the man with a terrible memory, I'm going to not take your... You're right. I had it twice. I had it once at Ascot and I had it once in London. I will say this was during record-setting heat waves. Yeah. So I'm not going to say it. <laughs> that wasn't the weirdest thing ever. But no, I would take the chicken tenders over that, but... I mean, you're describing it, your, your childhood. It's like an episode out of The Sopranos. I think it's going to make more people think, you know, that you're it's like bribes of chicken tenders and haagen <laughs> were being thrown around the New Jersey police force. Yeah, that was it. Nothing good ever flipped. It wasn't like a, a truck carrying PlayStation 2 ever flipped. That would have been nice. <laughs> the only other thing, Eddie, I wanted to bring up before we go to our interview was watching the Serena match. At the end, you know, when the players kind of hit the tennis balls into the crowd and you can like catch the tennis ball, um, it remind it, it's similar to for anyone who doesn't know, like in baseball, you know, when you hit a home run, you can catch the home run or foul ball, whatever. There was a woman who went to catch the tennis ball and just bumbled the shit out of this tennis ball. And like it was an awkward attempt to try and catch it. It bounced four rows in front and then someone else grabbed it. They lingered on the uh, on the scene and the woman came running down and was like asking the person for the ball as saying like, oh, I, I almost had it. Can you just give it to me instead? Who does that person think they are? They had all the opportunity in the world to catch this. It's not your it's not that person's fault that you're terribly unathletic and can't catch a tennis ball. I'm sorry, you don't get first right because it hit your finger. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you you do see the same, right, with home runs and foul balls sometimes where someone will be the first person to touch it and then they feel yeah. like, or it was hit sort of really directly at them, but they dropped it and then someone else picks it up and they feel like, well, yeah. that's my ball. No. And, if it's a child, it, I'll let it go. If it's a little 100%. kid and like, oh, he, he, you know, he couldn't catch it, whatever, yeah, give it to the kid. But when it's a grown adult woman and you can't catch a tennis ball, I'm sorry, you don't get first dibs on it. But also, I mean, it goes back. We on the last episode, right, discussed the the Tom Brady last not last touchdown uh, ball. Why do you even really want that tennis ball? Like, what are you going to do? That's the kind of thing you get, and you re- you think it's cool for about the five minutes it takes you to walk out of the stadium, <laughs> and then and then you're just holding a random tennis ball. That what every time you're gonna put it up somewhere, and then someone's gonna go like, "Why do you have a tennis like a tennis ball sitting there?" Oh, and there's no significant story really behind no. it apart from it was used in the match that Serena Williams played in her last U.S. Open. Like, it's not there's no cool element to that. No, it's not like it's the one that Serena hit off the girl's face for the for the winning point or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, exactly. There's no, there's no cool anecdote. Yeah. So it's literally, you're probably going to end up throwing it away. Yeah. You know, within a few months, you're just going to go, actually, I I don't need that tennis ball. But I, it's, it's, yeah. And it's just baffling to me though, in that person's head, they're thinking like, yeah, I'm shit at catching this, but I still deserve it. (laughs) Like, Why? You had every opportunity in the world and you failed. You don't, you don't get something when you fail. The only time I will disagree, I saw a video earlier this week of someone in at a baseball game and he like dives headfirst into a chair to try and catch it and just ate it. And then the person who did pick it up, he didn't ask for it, but the person who did pick it up gave it to him. There, the moment there, I do agree that he put in such a level of effort and put his own safety and well-being at risk that I think you go, okay, you obviously deserve this. But if you've just stuck up a hand to try and catch it and didn't manage to, then no. But on that note, I guess, should we hand things over to our interview with Robbie Simpson? Yeah, I mean, I think we've covered spilt food and missed miss balls. Let's uh, let's go to the interview. <laughs> Welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. We're now delighted to be joined by this week's guest, Robbie Simpson, who I think giving an introduction for you is a little bit of a challenge at the moment. I guess you're a a manager, businessman, entrepreneur. You're kind of, you've got a finger in multiple pies right now. I I guess easiest way maybe to have you introduce yourself and see what, you know, kind of which thing you think is the most important one of your projects right now. The time poor Robbie Simpson, I think, is the best. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah a lot going on like you say a manager in with a um a national league south part-time football team or soccer team and um yeah I, I own i own and run two businesses um as well one helping sports people find their purpose beyond sport um in terms of careers and then the other as a as a financial planner um Again, not not solely for sports people, but just naturally, I uh, happen to have a lot of sports people as clients, helping them build their um, wealth for the future. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting, and I think definitely we want to sort of get onto the entrepreneurship side of things, and particularly this lapse, the sort of life after professional sport. I think it's a topic that comes up with us sometimes when we're speaking to our guests, particularly those where you know they aren't making the sums of money where they're retiring at 35 and never having to worry about anything ever again. So definitely want to move on to that. But I guess for, you know, we've got listeners from all over the world and you have this interesting footballing journey, I guess, having spent, you know, kind of gone from multiple clubs throughout the, you know, sort of lower divisions of English football, I guess is the easiest way to describe it. But, you know, some notable times at the likes of sort of Coventry and, and Brentford and Huddersfield, you know, names that will be familiar to, sort of pretty much anyone who's following any level of English football. What was your sort of career like, your sort of professional journey like as a player? Um, and sort of how did it come about? And and because you also had the interesting start as a sort of student athlete, I guess, would be the easiest way to describe it from an American perspective, kind of unusual for a professional footballer in England. Yeah, student athletes, it's quite common in the States, isn't it, student athletes? And that's that's the route into professional sport. But over here, it's, it was very much the opposite if you pretty much have to choose education or sport from quite a young age um and from that aspect i had a bit of a different um entry into professional sport where i did go to university i did get a degree before i became a professional football player 
and I was playing semi semi professional football throughout my university time at university, um, and it just um, I just got lucky really. I had one really good season in my final year at university playing part time football. Um, I was actually playing for again, it's another weird story, but I was actually playing for a professional football team. But I was the only part-time player in that professional football team. <laughs> they, I, I signed for them after my second year at university. So I had one more uni, university to go, but they wanted to sign me. Um, but I said I, I wouldn't because I've got one more year at university left. I wouldn't, wasn't going to throw that away for a pipe dream of being a professional football player. So I'm very fortunate that they allowed me to to do that and and be a student and a professional sports person and and being honest I um I still lived the student lifestyle as if it was my final year at university as well I was still partying pretty hard um and for whatever reason it worked because I just kept scoring goals that season um I had a, a spell out of injury but kept scoring goals and I graduated in the July signed for Coventry in the championship over here that same month and then two months later, I was making my first full professional debut away at Old Trafford against Manchester United. So it's it, it's quite the crazy. first <laughs> like first first job posting is it's not bad for your first job out of university. I guess it's worth noting. I mean, you went to Loughborough, which is a, a sort of an elite sporting university anyway. So yeah. you do have, in terms of going there, at what point did you? At what point had you almost given up on the idea of being a professional footballer? And then was it only in that sort of final year where you felt as if it was actually a realistic possibility again? Or had, or was it sort of something that was almost never on the cards for you and almost until it happened? Yeah, so when I was 16, I got released from, a, I guess, a youth team contract um, at Norwich City. And it was at that moment then that I kind of thought to myself, maybe professional football isn't isn't for me maybe I'm not going to be good enough and my mum always used to tell me I was never going to be good enough she was trying to force me to choose university and choose education from quite a young age um and I always knew in that instance my mum was never going to let me not go to university <laughs> but I was still heartbroken when Norwich City didn't give me a a, a contract um at 16 and I guess at that point I thought, yeah, maybe my mum's right. But in the back of my head, I always wanted to prove her wrong. Um, so it was, it, again, it, w when I started playing semi-professional football, I realised that maybe I was too good for semi-professional football. But then at the same time, to be a professional football player, it's, it is a, a big jump up on whether I could handle that or not. I don't know. Maybe I was just destined to be one of the top semi-professional football players out there which which you see quite often over here actually you see quite often that you'll see a player in a football team in a, a part-time level and say oh he's he should go full-time he should be a professional but they never do they stay at that level semi-professional a lot of the time it's because they've got a well-paid job alongside playing um competing um but quite often it's just because they they don't have the confidence when they make that step up they can actually do it um, so when I got the opportunity to do like a hybrid model, I was at a professional football club at a professional level, but still part-time, I kind of could test the, test the water as such in that aspect and, and found that it was, I, I excelled in it and I thrived in it. So 
I was really pleased. So, so how, how difficult was that to be on a, like a professional team, but still, like you said, kind of be part-time because you're still going to university at the same time. And was that, was that a stressful time or was it, you were young and it, you know, it, it, you had the energy and the enthusiasm that, you know, sleeping four hour nights didn't really bother you. Like, what what was that like? Yeah, I didn't really care really. I was just living in the moment. (laughs) I was just living in the moment, loving, loving the student lifestyle. Um, I had quite a good second. I don't know how it works over there, but, um, over here you just have to pass your first year and it doesn't that first year doesn't really count towards your final grade but the second year is I think about 40% of your final grade and then the third year is 60% of your final grade and in the second year I got a really high mark high grading so I knew I could probably cruise that third year a little bit and still end up with a pretty decent final grade um so I kind of did cruise that third year, but at the same token, I was, I was not training during the week. I was, uh, the university had a football side as well, which technically I wasn't allowed to play for, but I still did. I still trained with them because they were my mates. I just saw it as playing football with my mates. Um, and I was going back to Cambridge. It was at the time, my full-time football team and not seeing the players all week. And, just turning up on match day and then I was starting and it was like there was pressure then for me to perform because otherwise the rest of the players will be like hang on a minute he's he's taking my place I haven't seen him all week and now he's performing like shit (laughs) what's going on they've got every right to say what's going on so I knew I had to there was pressure there for me to perform to make it okay in my fellow teammates eyes and 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 how was it then from like the reverse side of being going to university and being a professional athlete at the same time, you know, where, where people just like in awe and like, Oh my God, that's, that's, that's him. Like, that's so cool. Like, did, did it help your, your street cred at the university level too? Yeah, it did. Plus I was being paid, <laughs> I was being paid a bit of money as well. So I was probably the only, uh, the only student there with a bit of money in my pocket. <laughs> that's awesome. How popular on multiple fronts. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's plenty of drinks. Uh, people <laughs> and so you touch on there that there would have been a bit more pressure on you to perform if you're not training with the with Cambridge week sort of day in day out. Did, was there any animosity from the other players in terms of did they just acknowledge and recognize the fact that you were good enough to justify the deal you were getting, or were there players do you think who sort of felt like you weren't really fully part of the team in spite of the fact that you were turning up on match day and maybe delivering? Yeah, I think um, I think it was probably a week to week thing that if I if I turned up and didn't have a good game, then there would definitely be mumblings like this isn't right, what like what's going on? But I I just hit a streak from from the January onwards. I think I I scored seventeen goals in in the last fifteen games, so they couldn't they couldn't really say anything <laughs> say anything because I was performing, but certainly the games where I perhaps didn't score in the first half of the season, um, there would have been rumblings. But like I said, I did have quite a big injury where I was out for a few months. So um, I did my rehab up at Loughborough because they've got a good good rehab centre up there. So I did the majority of my rehab there rather than going back to Cambridge for it. So it wasn't it wasn't too bad. It, it, it definitely could have been a lot worse than what it was. Yeah. 
And I, one thing I'm always interested in, sort of then as your career progressed and, you know, you moved around and you, you went to the championship immediately after. And we've had players on the podcast previously who've, who are currently in the championship. And sort of when you speak to them about what their career goals are, everyone's talking about making it to the Premier League and their expectations for themselves are that they will get there. I guess now sort of after your career or after that period, it's a little bit easier to look back and maybe sort of have an honest assessment of what your skill level was and and whether or not you sort of maximized your potential. Did you feel like sort of once you then were in the championship that the Premier League was a realistic possibility? And did you feel over the course of your career as if sort of what did you feel like the right level for you to be playing at was for the the most part? I definitely thought I made the most of my ability. Right from an early age, I thought my skill level, as as you put it, is championship at best um but to get me there i knew my my work rate and work ethic and ability to take on managers instruction would get me there and it would then just be how long i could last there was there was a little spell where i was in the team at coventry and playing well and i heard little whispers that um mick mccarthy at wolves at the time was was liking what I was doing and paying some interest. And and that maybe got me a little bit flirting with the Premier League or thought that I could maybe play in the Premier League. Um, but I think deep down, reality, I knew that I um, I was a student at heart and I never <laughs> I knew I would never get, get to the Premier League. So I definitely think that I could have, that I, that I made the most of my ability. I, I do wish that, I do regret because I had a year left on my deal at Coventry in the championship and I left there to, to drop down a league to, to be a bigger fish really in in a, in a lesser team. And, and I do regret that. I wish I'd have stayed at the highest level possible for as long as possible. And did you think in dropping down at the time you thought you'd definitely be back? Yeah. Yeah. That was the plan to go there to get promoted with them, be the main man that got them promoted and then be, be a championship footballer again. But it, it didn't quite work out. Injury mainly in that first season and then falling out with the manager because of the injury really and and them not getting promoted um, because of the injury, I guess, because I wasn't playing. Um, yeah, and I was always, for the rest of my career, I was scrambling to get back to the championship because of that one regret, full decision I made. Um, and it never quite worked, unfortunately. And, and what's that like then? You're talking about sort of, you know, you've got a year left on your contract. I always think it's interesting because when people think of footballers, they're obviously imagining the lives of, you know, Premier League sort of top level footballers and all the money that comes with and the sort of security that comes out of it. How much over the course of your career are you thinking about sort of trying to get long term contracts and sort of almost sort of plotting out your career in a way that, I guess it's very relatable to everyone in a, a non-professional sporting world, but that we maybe don't associate with professional athletes. Yeah, I, I never really thought about length of contract until one season when I was out of contract um, and couldn't get a new football club. Like just whether that be me turning down offers stupidly that I got thinking oh, I'm better than that or I'm better than that football club. My off- They should be offering me more than that. Um, or whether it was clubs just not not wanting want, not wanting me, um, but yeah, you kind of don't think about it until until you get put in that situation, which is wrong. Like now, sort of my advice to any younger player is like 
you, your career is only as long as your contract, your current contract that you're on. Um, so when I had a year left at Coventry and then I signed three years at Huddersfield, that was a really good move, actually. Um, although I've regretted it ever since, it was a really good move in terms of stability and and longevity in, in soccer. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one because then also you're tied. If I did have an amazing season that first year at Huddersfield and other clubs were looking at me, Premier League clubs, for example, then Huddersfield had me under contract for another two years. They have every right to just keep hold of me. So it is a bit of a catch-22 in, in that sense. But in terms of longevity of career, don't ever be out of contract. Don't ever let yourself get less than a year in contract. Um, that, that's, that's the advice, really, for anybody these days. Which is interesting advice because it feels like the world of football is shifting more to the idea of trying to be a, a free agent. You know, like in terms of now how you how it looks like players, and I guess because they're thinking about the fact that they can maybe negotiate bigger salaries or signing on bonuses or whatever it is by not having a transfer fee. But it feels like the trend is shifting towards run your contract down and it puts you in a stronger position. But I guess the downside, obviously, is it comes with a lot more risk associated with it. Yeah, I guess it's how confident you are of your stock being that high. And, and no matter what in that, what happens in the next 12-month period, it's going to remain that high. It's how confident you are that, that that's going to be the case. If you're if you're not very confident, then you need to do something about it. If you are very confident, then you're the balls in your court. You're in the driver's seat, really, and you can you can pretty much do what you wanted. So, so when you get up to the championship with Coventry, what what was the first few matches like, or just even the first few weeks, you know, on at, at, at practices and things like that? How were you like really amped up and nervous or just ready to go and super excited? You know, how, what was that like? I was pretty, um, I was pretty nervous. So when I signed, they gave me a, 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 an off season training schedule for me to do in my own time, which I stuck to rigorously. And they said on your first day back, you're going to do um, a, a 12 minute run. And anybody who got gets less than 3000 meters on the 12 minute run is going to be, put into fat club what they call it and they'd be, in, they'd be in an hour before everybody else is in doing some sort of fat burning run or um, so I was just constantly making sure that I ran 3,000 meters in 12 minutes throughout the off season and first day back I was pretty nervous and we ended up doing a bit of training before we did the 12 minute run and I remember it was with the ball as well, because usually when you go back for the off-season, you don't see a football for the first couple of weeks. But he just threw in some balls first morning back and we were we were, we were having a bit of a keep ball session. Um, and the club captain, I gave the ball away and the club captain absolutely annihilated me for giving the ball away verbally. Like, go back to non-league and <laughs> go back to university, all that type of thing. Absolutely annihilated me. And that made me even more nervous. Um, and then the 12 minute run came in the afternoon and I was struggling and I, I just hit 3000 meters on the nose. I managed to do, cause there was like thousand meter laps and I did three laps on the nose um, in the 12 minutes, just as the whistle blew, I crossed the line and I was so relieved. And the next morning, the manager called me into his office and said, you're in fat club. I was like, what do you mean? I ran 3,000 metres. He's like, you've got to do better than that. Like, You've come up from non-league. You need to be 
you need to be better than just um, just making it over the line. So that was a big reality check for me, really. And and that's not. I mean, that's a fairly quick pace. Yeah. To be running a like a four minute one k, it's not a it's not a bad pace. No. Yeah, it's decent. Yeah. In terms of then your integration into sort of switching into life of professional football, I, and I think with a lot of professional sports, there's sometimes a little bit of a stigma associated with athletes who are you know intelligent or have interests outside of sport, and the fact that you had a a university degree sort of separates you from most of the people you'd have been playing with. I think obviously. I remember in the 90s, like Graham Lasso, people sort of, he was sort of ripped into for the fact that he liked to read, which sort of made him somehow different. Did you find it difficult to relate to some of your teammates or that they felt differently about you because you'd had this different path? Yeah, it was it was a strange scenario at Coventry, actually, because I'm a big Arsenal fan. And um, Stephen Hughes, I sat next to Stephen Hughes my very first day in the changing room, who was ex-Arsenal part of the invincible squad won the premier league like two two years before i or three years before that in 2001 and it was um it was a really surreal moment because he was 30 plus at the time and he was next to another 30 plus year old and they were speaking about what they were going to do when they've retired and how they were really quite worried about their future beyond football and what they're going to do and I was thinking at the time, what the hell are these two on about? They've had a 15-year career playing professional football. One of them's played in the Premier League with Arsenal, won the Premier League with Arsenal. Surely he can just sit at home wiping his ass with his money the whole <laughs> for as long as he wants and it'll be fine. But they were they just had a serious chat that very first day, like, oh yeah, it could be our last season, what we're gonna do after. And it that was a real eye-opener for me. Um and then throughout the course of that season, because they realised I then went to university, they were asking me about oh, what qualifications do you think I can get or what career can you go into with what degree I had behind me? And it was, it was very surreal. I was almost mentoring them. Yeah. I was a 22-year-old lad straight out of university, having drunk my way through my, <laughs> my last season, somehow scoring goals. And then they're asking me to kind of be like a mentor for their future careers and education. It was, it was so surreal, but it really was, I guess, a little flame that ignited within me of what I now, what I now do, or what I then set up you know, several years later. And I guess that's maybe a nice way of transitioning to, to laps and, and life after professional sport, the work that you do with athletes. And, and obviously I think so many headlines are, professional athletes going broke and you know five years later they're bankrupt and you see just sort of how lives in a sense can almost fall apart just because of sort of either lost identity or just the fact that they just don't know what to do with themselves and how do you keep yourself busy and you've kind of gone from a life where everything was very scheduled and regimented and all of a sudden first time in your life is maybe a 36 year old with a day where you have nothing to do how Sort of how did it come about in a sense, the creation, I guess, best starting point, how did you, you talk about those early influences in terms of hearing the other players talk about what their future careers might look like? But when did you make the decision to really become personally involved and to create the organization that you have? I think um, an another moment with one of my teammates, again, who was at Coventry, who came towards the end of his career got one final injury where he knew that that was him done um, playing professional football. 
and he tried to commit suicide. So that really was another another aspect of me thinking, Jesus, like <laughs> this is now very serious in my head. One of my old teammates has tried to take his own life. Um, but also a personal experience. I said when I was out of contract at Oldham and couldn't get a new deal, whether that be me being naive or clubs not wanting me, that was a big realisation about how quickly a sporting career can end before you know it. You know, I was 27 at the time, feeling like I'm at my peak, having come off the back of um, two seasons of me performing, in my opinion, at a very good level. And obviously I had in my head that I want to get back to the championships. So and maybe I was a bit naive thinking that this was it, this was it now or never. But it, like I say, I wasn't, I, I didn't get any championship offers. And by that time had come, all the League One offers that I had were gone. All the League Two offers I had were, were gone. Um, and that could have been it. That was a big realisation. This could be the end of my football career. And I didn't really, even though I had a university degree behind me, even though I feel like I was good with my money, sensible with my money. My dad worked for a, in private banking for 40 years nearly. So he made sure I was good with my money and, and didn't just spunk it all. Um, I, I should be, I should have been in a really well-equipped position compared to my peers um, on paper of dealing with this kind of situation and just sort of dust myself off, say, okay, right now time to join the real world. Just as, just like all my old university teammates did um university friends did sorry not teammates and I was I was just oh I don't really know what to do I've been a footballer for the last 10 12 years I haven't written a CV since I was 16 I, I really haven't educated myself since I left university I haven't even thought about other careers that what I might interest me and I was really stuck um I'm in my prime. I still want to be a footballer. I still want to get back to the championship. It was a really tough time. And I didn't feel like that the support was there for, for me emotionally and mentally at that situation. And also if I had to, if, if I was totally sound of it and thought, right, new career now, I didn't feel like there was a, an avenue for me to go, a platform for me to go and use to help me having, I guess, a second, being a second careerist. I didn't feel like, especially coming from the first career being a sporting career where it is high pressured and very much its own bubble. It's not just, um, I wouldn't say it's a normal career change. It is from elite sport where you are, people pay to watch you, what you do, what you do to right finding a new I don't want to say average Joe career, but it's a, a normal yeah. career that most people would go into. Um, I didn't feel like there was an avenue to support that. And and that was like the light bulb moment. Right, right well, rather than complain about it, do it. <laughs> you know, set something up to, for not only yourself to utilise right now, but for your fellow teammates to help them and hopefully stop them committing suicide. But if I look at it in a positive light, give them something that they really look forward to beyond beyond sport rather than it absorbing them and crushing them. I think it's really interesting and, and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, we had, 
I always think it's interesting. It kind of reminds me. We had Alex Payne, the former Sky Sports presenter. He host, co-hosts the Good, the Bad, and the Rugby podcast on. And yeah. when he was on, he spoke about the fact that when he left Sky, he sort of had his identity torn away from him. That, you know, he'd, I, he was Alex Payne, the Sky Sports presenter. And so yeah. even though he had plenty of career options and, you know, was in a good position to continue to do things, suddenly he had to reassess who he was as a person. And that led to a sort of moment of sort of, a kind of a crisis that he didn't think could have happened even though everything else in his life was in order so you can definitely see i mean i don't i can't imagine you know as someone who's had to i guess live in the sort of real world my whole life in terms of working i can't imagine having to give up on the sort of dream of being a professional athlete you know most of us do it between the ages of 18 and 22 i guess to have to do it at you know in your late 20s or in your 30s and and rebuild your life it's going to be a huge challenge but yeah, then speaking, I think, go ahead. Sorry. No, I think just along those lines, you're kind of taught that as well. You're you're taught that if you want to be a professional sports person, you have to be 100 percent towards it. Nothing can get in your way. You've got to be narrow, narrow minded, pure focus on being that. Eat, sleep, drink that professional sport. Um, and part of that is true. Um, but I think you can also be fully focused on a couple of things, maybe like 80, 20% or even 90, 10%. You shouldn't a hundred percent for me isn't, isn't healthy. Um, especially when you get bumps in the road or what if it doesn't happen, you, you've got to be a more, I'm a big believer in a more well-rounded person makes a better athlete. Um, and if you're, if you're 100% solely focused on, on that professional sport, I don't think you'll be able to be as well-rounded a person as, as you could be. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really, that's sorry. Just yeah. before you ask, I think that's a really interesting point. Cause you see in the draft in American sports, when people come out of college, sometimes athletes are criticized for having additional interests. Like there are players who, who've said like, no, I wanted to finish my degree or I also like doing this in addition to playing the sport that I'm about to go to. And there, it's actually like a negative in terms of the teams that are trying to then assess them. It's like, well, if your life isn't a hundred percent, this, how are we, you're probably less likely to be successful, which you would never do in any other walk of life. You know, like I've never gone for a job interview and they've said, you must eat, sleep, drink sort of <laughs> yeah. marketing. Otherwise you're, you're, you're not working here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And that's a, it's a really tough education point for, for coaches and for, for teams and, and managers. Like I, I, I worked with a manager who the first time I met him to sign for his football club, he asked me about what family have you got? And it was the first time it was just something different from a manager rather than sitting me down saying, right, how do you think you're going to fit into my team? Or what do you think you could bring to my team? He said, oh, okay, well, tell me about your family. And it really took me aback, but I love, I loved it. And it made me want to play better for him. Um, and it, is, there was no surprise to me if I take my Coventry squad, my teammates at Coventry, I was the only one in that dressing room with a degree behind me or even studying for a degree. Whereas if I fast forward to my team at Exeter with that manager, there was 11 out of 22 that have either completed a degree or currently studying a degree. And I think that's the... He didn't actively encourage it with the with the players, but the fact that he was wasn't solely football 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 in his general chat and general demeanor it, it, i think it led the players to actually think about 
their family or think about what else there is outside of football. And, and I think that that was really healthy and, and he's ended up being a, a really big success at Exeter. Yeah. And, and I mean, just getting back to what you were saying before, you know, athletes, like you said, they're, they're all in, you know, it's a hundred percent dedicated to the sport and kind of proving everyone wrong. But then as you get towards the end of your career, you you're an athlete. So you have that attitude of, you know, I can still do this. I can still prove everyone wrong, but how, like, do, do you kind of help with, I know it's life after sport, but are, are, are you helping with them kind of trying to figure out, okay, maybe, maybe your time's over, you know, or are you never getting involved in that aspect of it? Because I think you probably do see athletes that hold on a little too long and, you know, maybe they miss other opportunities outside of sport that they could have had. So how is that type of conversation handled? Yeah, I guess um, we never tell, we would never say to to an athlete that, listen, we think you should quit. Um, in fact, probably the opposite. We, we say, look, you should play as, as long as you can. You should. But what we have to do is give them the opportunities or information to help them make a better decision for themselves. So we can... We, we go into, for example, we go into Premier League under 18s and under 23 squads now and just give them um, just little bits of information about what sports people, and I'm talking like professional sports people that they're aspiring to be, do alongside football. And they're really successful at it and also successful on the field. And then also once they've retired, we give little snippets of what, what retired professional sports people have gone into. And, and you mentioned there about not earning enough that it's not just about earning enough, not to have to work again. Cause if you think of, we mentioned sky sports, if you think of Gary Neville, Jamie Carragher, Jamie Redknapp, they've probably earned enough not to have to work again, I would imagine, but they do. And I can almost guarantee you that all three of them work really hard at being the best pundits they can possibly be. And it's not for the money. It's because they just love getting their teeth stuck into something. They're not, I believe that sports people aren't just ones to sit on the couch and count their money all day and watch Netflix or whatever they want to do. They want something that they want, that they want to be the best at or the best that they can be at, whether that be during their careers or even post careers in, in, in something else. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it would be difficult to have the sort of mindset that's necessary to become an elite level athlete and then just be able to switch that off at, you know, 35 years yeah. old yeah. and say, uh, that's, this is okay now. I can watch daytime television and, and you know, enjoy the fact that life's not too bad. I mean, we just we just had an interview with uh, Tobias Dorzan, who's, who is a professional NFL, uh, National Football League player um, in America. And then as, as soon as he kind of realized his time was up, he became a professional chef and now you know, he's aspiring to be wow. the best chef in, in, in America, if not the world, you know, and he, he does all these competition cookings and all that. And, and for him, you could tell he has that athlete mentality that he's going to be the best no matter what he's doing, no matter what his career is. So that you, you definitely see that, I think, with a lot of athletes. And I think, you know, that's where they can be successful at other other occupations because they just have that, you know, never quit, have to be the best mentality, right? Yeah, that's amazing. And like I said, they've got They've got all these natural soft skills. You know, they learn from their failures quickly because they always analyze their sporting performance. So if they, beyond like in, when he was cooking, for example, I reckon if he got something wrong in his dish, he would quickly 
analyze what went wrong and and put it right really quickly it's and and the the range of careers that sport that 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 those traits are suited to is endless um as long as that person it's i think it's our job at laps to help that sports person find that passion that they can use those skills towards because if they're not passionate about if he wasn't passionate about cooking you're that guy for example then he wouldn't care if he made a mistake he'd just say oh yeah that was rubbish i'll forget about that dish and go on to the next but because he was so passionate about cooking he could then use his soft skills to then be the best be the best cook (laughs) be the best chef and yeah. And there's so many careers out there. There's bound to be one for each sports person that they have an interest or a passion in. And it's just our job and their job to to find it. And how difficult do you think that is? Because I would assume that for most professional athletes, they're thinking their post-playing career is coaching, management, media. You know, it's sort of, I stay within sport in in some sort of way. This is what we do how difficult for it is. And obviously there's only a limited number of jobs within all of those fields. And a lot of them are going to go to players who had, you know, really high level careers. It's going to be hard to be on sky sports as a, you know, league two player week in, week out. Yeah. How difficult is it to encourage them to be a bit more creative maybe in terms of the avenues that they're looking at? Yeah, it's tough. I think that's when you got to hit them with a bit of realism. So as part of our workshop, I use um, my own personal example where in that time when I was out of contract, I contacted our player association and and basically said the scenario I was in. And um, the first thing they said to me was, have you done your coaching badges? And my answer was no, but I'm not sure I really want to be a coach. Um, But I'll do them because at least I then have them just in case I change my mind. So I did these coaching badges and um i went to the coach educator taking the course i said how many players are doing their coaching badges this summer he said oh uh, 2000 looking really happy with himself um i said okay how many how many coaching jobs are there do you think um this summer and he's like oh you're talking 200 250 all in and that ranges from like academy right the way through to elite first team men's and I was like okay and he was like he, he said that's why you've got to be the best coach and be dedicated and I was like, <laughs> right. and in my head I was thinking well there's 1800 other people on this course this summer that you probably remember. built their hopes up the first thing you've told them to do and they're not going to be a coach so what else are you giving them <laughs> so it's really hard to change the mindset. And I think that the player associations have a duty not just to push what the players want to hear. They need to push or, or at least open their eyes to every aspect of of career that there might be. And who are you working with then in terms of getting in touch with the... Are you working with individual clubs? Is it, uh, is it being led by the associations or the leagues that are bringing you in? So what is that process like in terms of how you're actually starting to work with players on a, on a sort of one-to-one basis. Yeah. So with, um, with the workshops we do, the Premier League fund us to go into every single Premier League football club under 18s and under 23s. And then beyond the Premier League, there's an organization called the League Football Education. And they give every club an education budget each year. And they've recommended, they don't have to, but they've recommended that clubs use part of their education budget to get us into 
speak with their players. Um, so that's pretty good. I, I would like a bit more um, buy-in from our players' association, from the PFA. I really would. I, I think that um, they still, for some reason, see laps as a threat to them rather than utilising us as part of what they do. Um, and I've been trying to build that bridge for a long time because ultimately I am still a PFA member and um, I just, both our end goals should be aligned. Our end goal is that we stop players having trouble when they when their career comes to an end and how they get there doesn't really matter. If they want to use laps, great. If they don't want to use laps but still get there, that's still great. And I think um, I, I would like the PFA to have that mindset a bit more. And so do you think it's the PFA or if, if you sort of look at the landscape and you think who could have the biggest impact on changing the way, you know, the, how a lot of players end up, is that the PFA that could have the sort of have the biggest shift? Is it individual clubs sort of at what level? And obviously, ideally, it's a, it's a buy-in from everyone. But who do you think could have the biggest impact if it was just one to fully commit to the concept? The, the biggest impact, potentially the clubs. But I feel like the PFA have the responsibility because the the club is essentially it's a business. Why would you spend a lot of time, money and effort um, developing stuff that isn't going to benefit your company in in the long run? Um, the, the club's sole focus is to have the best first team that brings in the, the most money and the best football players. Whereas, so I think that the clubs have a responsibility to do it as a duty of care, but the professional football association actually have, it is their job. It is, it's what they're meant to be doing. So I think it is them more than, more than anything. So I guess we, we don't have too much time left. I, I kind of just wanted to go back to, to your career a little bit because I think being in the championship is, is it's an interesting, I think dynamic because, you know, you mentioned you thought that was the level that you were at. And then you have other people who are, reaching the ends of their careers, kind of dropping back down in, in, into like the championship. And then you have young guns who are kind of making their way up. So what's that changing room dynamic like where you have, you know, is, is it as stereotypical as people make it to be where you have these young guns who, you know, oh, I'm going to be here for a year and I don't really care about anyone. And then you have the the old grumpy guys coming back down that are winding their careers and don't want to talk to anyone or, or is it, is it just, you know, a, a more general changing room where everyone is, just kind of friends and, and, you know, chatty and stuff like that. No, it's exactly how you first described it. So Ted Lasso is right for all the American listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is, yeah. Yeah. You've got the youngsters in the corner that just go home and play FIFA and, and muck about and know really they're not, they're just waiting for their chance. That's they're probably never going to come. Then you've got the old grumpy ones in the total opposite corner that are just, having a cup of tea after training with their feet up, not really being professionals anymore. Um, and then you've got the the group in the middle that are, are kind of in their prime wanting to achieve something, I guess. So there is that real mix. And I think that successful teams like your Ted Lasso teams have, have all of them just appreciating one another, but working together. Um, but yeah, and the worst teams will, will basically be separated. And how common was that then over the course of your career? Did you feel like for the most part, and I guess from 
you know, have listeners who are sort of thinking about the teams that maybe they support. Do you, do you feel like everyone was for the most part pulling in the same direction over the course of a season? Were there people who just check out, you sort of have a championship or league one season where you realize promotion is not happening in January and decide basically on an early holiday. How consistent was it that within the squad, it was pretty much everyone working as nearly as hard as possible? It's kind of like what I said, that the, the most successful squads were all together. Um, obviously have their separated divisions, but work together really well. And then the worst ones were just separated that didn't interact as a group, uh, as a whole group whatsoever. So it, was, it varied from club to club. I would say Oldham, it was very much separated, um, hence why we were down the bottom of the league. But we had good cup runs, which was weird. Um, but in terms of, I guess that's cup games, uh, are cup games, they are one-off games where you can perform and you can get lucky. Whereas I think the course of a consistent league season over 40 games you, you know where your squad's at and you know... Uh, and I guess winning and losing helps that. If you win, everyone's it's easier for everyone to be more together. And if you lose, it's a lot easier to point the fingers at a certain group and, and stay separated. So results depend on a lot, but it's it's kind of like what comes first, chicken or egg. I was just saying, and just maybe, who is the most talented footballer you ever played with on your on your team? Oh, oh. Gonna upset a few people. <laughs> I love putting you on the spot there. <laughs> um, Ollie Watkins is up there with one of the most talented. He's obviously now Aston Villa and plays for England. I was Exeter with him. Um, lovely guy. You, you just knew straight away that we, we, I was in League Two with him at the time, but you just knew straight away that he was going to play in the Premier League at the top level. Um, just because of how hard he worked and how dedicated he was and how willing he was to accept what he maybe wasn't good at and and get better at it. It was amazing, really. It was amazing to watch him and amazing to see his journey so far. And I hope that there's still more to come from him. And do you, did you feel frustration? On, was Did he know that's what he was destined to be then? And did he feel frustrated to be sort of at the level he was at in that moment in time? Sorry, asking was he in the corner playing FIFA, Eddie? Is that what you're asking? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. No, it, it, he he. That's a good thing about him. I don't think he ever was frustrated. I think he just knew what he had to do, and it, he was very accepting that he was at that level. But he was also very confident that he could get to the next level, and it was only a matter of time if he kept working like he did that you'll get there. And then my final question, a question we kind of like to ask people from a whole range of sports that we have on, and sometimes they don't have an answer, so don't feel bad putting you on the spot. Is there a moment in your career, like a single match, that if you could go back and replay, sort of one where you felt like that was a missed opportunity or I sort of missed a chance to score that I wish I could have again, or sort of something where you think that's the one match I'd like to be able to relive? That is a good question. I always come back to penalty misses for some reason. It makes sense, I guess. Yeah. I've missed <laughs> it's easily fixable, I suppose. Yeah, I've missed a couple of penalties. I think I was, I missed a penalty um, when I was playing for Brentford. I won the penalty and I'd actually come on off the bench for the normal penalty taker. And I made sure I grabbed the ball because I won the penalty and we, it was one all. 
and we need to obviously it was a last minute score to win and I hit the post and I think that I don't know I think that if if I'd have scored that I think I would have finished the season really strong with Brentford whereas because I missed it it was almost as if that was my season over at Brentford and um, that's how it felt at the time and from that moment onwards for the rest of the season so I'm yeah maybe they'd have kept me at the end of the season if I'd have finished the season strong and and who knows I might be winning the Premier League with them now but um, yeah, so I think I'd probably highlight that one. See, see, Eddie and I have a good one too. He'll bring you down, then I'll I'll ask the final question and bring you up. What's what was your favorite or best moment that you look back on as a professional footballer? I've got three. Does that oh, perfect? Pick one. No, yeah, I go go them, three, yeah. go all three. I'm sure they're all great. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the first one is my debut at Old Trafford, my full debut in professional football. Um, obviously it was always a dream of mine to be a professional footballer so to make my full debut at Old Trafford beating them 2-0 is just a moment that I'll, I had I think they um, we sold 11,000 away tickets at Old Trafford and f- they each give the players an allocation of tickets and usually it's four per person whereas I had 48 because <laughs> I knew I was starting so oh, wow that's awesome 48 tickets and so I knew all my family and friends basically half of Loughborough University were there because it was only a month after I graduated so that was sort of like the first moment that I'll never forget from my sporting career the the next one was my goal at Anfield putting us 1-0 up at the cop end against Liverpool Um, the best goal I'll ever score with my left foot from 25 yards on the volley Um, I'll never forget that moment and then the last one was was getting promoted with MK Dons on the last day of the season I'd always I say promotion escaped me but I'd lost in a playoff final at Wembley four times I'd then lost in the semi-final playoffs twice and I, I think I would always look back on my sporting career if I hadn't even achieved a promotion as a bit of a failure um I always cast myself as a team failure and always part of successful teams because how I can influence the group to be successful and, like you say, bring the changing room together with all the different facets that are in the changing room. So for me to have finished my career without a promotion, I would have probably considered it a failure. So to get it in my last game of professional football for MK Dons is is a fitting way to finish. Well, and, and probably a fitting way, I guess, to also, as Frank said, to finish the interview <laughs> on a high. But, <laughs> but Robbie, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. And obviously, good luck with, you know, laps and, 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 the, and the wealth management and also with Chelmsford this season. Yeah. Thank you so and, much. And, and Robbie, I think, I think you should be pitching your story to, for, for a movie here. Being a professional athlete as a, at university and having your first match at Old Trafford and having half your university come watch. I mean, that just sounds like a great movie. <laughs> what was that movie? Was it Goal? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you.